Again, glad you guys are here. Uh, my name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Ezra chapter 1. Middle school, you guys can slip out with Autumn and Jeremy if you'd like to do that. So they're doing that. Uh, one announcement. We're needing some more volunteers with our kindergarten through third grade. Uh, it's our biggest class, both 930 and 11. Uh, we need some more adult uh, and student small group leaders. So I'd ask you to pray and see if the Lord is calling you into that. Um, through the rest of this school year. If you have more questions about what that would look like, you can email Tracy Lytle. She's our director in that area, Tracy at StonebridgeMarietta.org. If you don't know Tracy, you can see Kim. She was the woman uh, doing the announcements earlier today, and she can direct you into the, to the right person. Uh, so please pray about that. Don't just assume somebody else is going to. Uh, we need small group leaders for kindergarten through third grade, 930 and at 11. So you ask the Lord if he would have you do that between now, uh, for now through the end of the school year. All right, so it's been a while since we've looked at Ezra, so we're going to do a big recap. It's been a couple of months, 586 B.C., Babylonian exile, up to that point in Israel's history, the most devastating event in their, uh, their history as God's people. At that point, you've got many Jews who are questioning, are we, is God still our God and are we still his people? Are we still in a covenantal relationship with God? 586, the Babylonians, they've laid siege to Jerusalem. They break through the walls. They level the temple. They burn the buildings. They deport thousands of people from the promised land. Core promises of God are now in question. This land that God had promised Abraham, well, they just got kicked out of it. This city, Jerusalem, where God said his name would dwell, leveled ransacked. The temple where God said he would live and meet with his people, rubble. There would always be a son of David on the throne. There is no throne, and there's not a son of David on it. The Jews are no longer free people. They're living under Babylonian uh, rule. Devastating time. Ezra picks up about 50 years after that event, and we're going to read just a couple of sections from Ezra to refresh your memory. So this is Ezra 1, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. In any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted with the articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. You can flip over to verse, or excuse me, chapter 6. It's about 22 years later. King Darius then issued an order, so we got a new king, and they searched in the archives stored in the treasury of Babylon. A scroll was found in the citadel of Ecbatana in the province of Midia, and this was what was written on it. In the first year of King Cyrus, the king issued a decree concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present, to present sacrifices and let its foundations be laid. 
is to be 60 cubits high and 60 cubits wide with three courses of large stone and one of timber. The costs are to be paid by the royal treasury. Also the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, are to be returned to their places in the temple in Jerusalem. They're to be deposited in the house of God. Now then, Tatanay, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozanay, and you other officials of that province, stay away from there. Don't interfere with the work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild the house of God on its site. Moreover, I hereby decree what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of this house. Their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of Trans-Euphrates, so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and olive oil, as requested by the priests in Jerusalem, must be given them daily without fail, so they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. Verse 13, then because of the decree King Darius had sent, Tatanay, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Sethar Bozanay and their associates carried it out with diligence. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Iddo. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, the kings of Persia. The temple was completed on March 12, 516, during the reign of King Darius. Real quick timeline just to help you get your mind around all of that. 539, the Persians have overtaken the Babylonians. They're the big kid on the block. Cyrus is the king. God moves his heart to say to everybody who's been exiled, all the Jews that are living in his territory, any of y'all that want can go home. Go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. 42,360 Jews do that. 42,360 Jews whose hearts were stirred by God return to Jerusalem and they're sent back with gifts. They, they don't have any money. They're sent back with gifts from the, thing, uh, from the people who are staying. They get back to Jerusalem. It's a 900-mile journey. They immediately begin to work on the altar. They rebuild the altar. It's a place of sacrifice, of offerings, what we would call a place of worship. Then they begin in obedience to the Lord to rebuild the foundation of the temple. And as they do that, they meet some resistance. They're locals who've been living in Jerusalem for decades who are non-Jews. The Babylonians deported the Jews and they imported some foreigners and placed them in Judah. Those guys have been living there for decades. And again, they're non-Jews. And when the Jews return and they begin to rebuild the temple, they create some hostility. And so this, this group, this opposition, they intimidate the Jews and they frustrate their plans. And they're successful. The Jews quit working. For 16 years, they don't do anything on the temple of God. God sends a drought that's severe, which leads to a famine, which is severe, softening the returnees up. And then in 520, he sends two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to explain what's going on. They say, "Here's here's why there's a famine. It's because you're building your own houses and you're neglecting the house of God. You're living in disobedience. And, and God is calling you to repent. And here's what's going to happen if you do. And the people, to their credit, do repent. They listen to the message of Haggai. They listen to the message of Zechariah. Honestly, they're still scared uh, about the locals. But they press through that and they begin to rebuild the temple. 
And it's completed in 516 BC. So three and a half years after they actually started doing it, the temple is completed. It's a remarkable story. And you may be saying, what does that have to do with me? 2,500 years ago, that temple was destroyed again 500 years after that. It's never been rebuilt. It was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. What does that have to do with me and my life in Marietta in 2021? I see some points of continuity, one major point of continuity between us and the returnees. The returnees were living in this weird in-between time where God had begun to fulfill his promises, but he hadn't yet finished. The, the, the promises of God were, we'll just say, partially fulfilled. There were some things God was already doing, but there were uh, some other things that he had not yet done. And that can create tension for God's people. In the Old Testament, the Jews were the people of God. In the New Testament, the church with a capital C. We're the, we're the people of God. We're the new Israel. And so we can look back at that first Israel, and, and we can learn some things. We can look at their situation living in this in-between time. God had, again, begun to do some things. He hadn't yet finished. Remember that big question, are we still in covenant with God? And he's beginning to fulfill these promises that he made to them. But, those, but again, it's not, it, 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 it's, they don't cross the finish line yet. And we can look at our own lives. We live in between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. There are some things that God has begin, begun to do in our life, some promises he has begun to fulfill, but they're not complete. And again, that can create tension. And we can look back at these returnees and say, here's how God's working. Here's where I can be encouraged. Here's what God expects of me. I think maybe you can see this most clearly. If you look at this map, if you think about the land, that was one of the things, probably the most significant of these promises. There's this dirt that God had promised to Abraham you're going to have. And then the Jews are deported. They lose their inheritance. That was their inheritance, and they lost it. And so, again, they're wondering, are we still in a covenant with God? And when they return, they return to the promised land, but only to a portion of it. You can see on that map, there's, a, there's um, the top set, what is it, purplish, says Old Kingdom of Israel, and then that orange color, the Old Kingdom of Judah. So that's after the time of Solomon. After Solomon, there's, there's one nation under David and Solomon. It, it splits into two, Israel and Judah, after Solomon's death. And you can see the territory that was held by the northern ten tribes, that's Israel, and by the southern two tribes, that's Judah. You can see how much land they had, but even that's reduced from what God promised Abraham. But then you can see that little black box. That's what the returnees got. That's where they were allowed to settle. That was, the, that was called Judea. When you read about Judea, in the New Testament, that's the area that you're talking about. Radically reduced territory. Still in the promised land 100%. Just not all of it. God had begun to fulfill this promise. This is your land and I'm going to give it back to you. But it wasn't completely fulfilled. They didn't get all of the territory back. Already and not yet, this weird in-between. God called them back to Jerusalem. But at the point of Ezra 6, the walls are still destroyed. Nobody's living there. He's begun to fulfill this promise, but it's not yet completed. It won't be till about another 70 years before the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt and people begin to live there again. The temple is rebuilt, which is incredible. It's just not quite the same. In Ezra 3, it says the elders, the old people that saw 
the temple being rebuilt, who had seen Solomon's temple, they wept. It just wasn't as impressive. The Ark of the Covenant had gotten lost during the exile. So you have the Holy of Holies again, but there's nothing in it. When Solomon dedicated the first temple, fire falls from heaven and burns up the offering. That doesn't happen when the returnees dedicate the second temple. When, when Solomon dedicates the first temple, God in the form of a cloud descends and fills the most holy place. And his presence is so strong that the priests fall down and they can't do their work. It doesn't happen when the second temple is dedicated. God is fulfilling his promises, but it's, just, it's not, not all the way there. You're not crossing the finish line. There is, still, there is no throne of David. The king is... Cyrus and Artaxerxes and Darius, these pagan Persians. Israel's enemies have not yet been defeated. Israel has not yet been restored to sovereignty as a nation. Again, it's this in-between, and that's exactly where we live between the first and the second coming of Jesus. The penalty of our sins has been paid for. We're forgiven. But the presence of sin has not yet been eradicated. We still wrestle with sin in our own life and in our world. Our enemy, the devil, he's been defeated. He was defeated at the cross. But he hasn't yet been destroyed. He continues to wreak havoc in our life. The effects of the fall, the curse, that's been reversed. But we still experience some of the fallout. We continue, easy, we continue to get sick. It's one of the results of the fall. And we continue to get sick. We live in this in between. God has fulfilled some of his promises, but not all of them. Jesus is establishing his kingdom on the earth, his rule and his reign, and yet there's lots of hearts that are not submitted to him and lots of areas of our community and our world where he's not ruling and reigning. Already and not yet, and that can create tension for us internally. How do we live there? And the returnees in Ezra, they, they, they can teach us some things. Primary thing I want you to see, we talked about this several months ago. You've probably forgotten. Doesn't hurt my feelings. Primary thing that we see in Ezra 1 through 6, we see the sovereignty of God on display. The word sovereignty, that's a loaded term. People in this room and watching online will disagree with me. And if you do, I just encourage you to try to press through. The di- don't argue with me in your head. Just try to listen and see if there's anything that you can grab onto. There's another side to this uh, definition, another side to this truth about sovereignty that I'm not going to dive into. There are people who love Jesus and honor the word who would disagree with me pretty strongly. And again, some of them are in this room and some are online. I'm not necessarily asking that you, disagree, that you agree with me. I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. I'm just telling you my perspective, what I see as I read Ezra, and hopefully this will be encouraging to you. So again, don't, don't get mad and argue with me. Just try to listen and see if the Lord would speak to you. Not necessarily about changing your opinion, but what he would say to try to encourage your heart this morning. When I say sovereignty, what I'm saying is God superintends or governs the affairs of the world. God's sovereignty is his ability to accomplish his will on the earth. If you think about uh, ingredients. When I think about God's sovereignty, to me, what's mixed together is his omnipotence, his power, his omniscience, his wisdom and his knowledge, and his omnibenevolence, his goodness, 
God is all good, he's all powerful, and he's all wise and all knowing. And those three attributes kind of get mixed together in what we experience is God's sovereignty, him working to accomplish his purposes. If God has a checklist to say that God is sovereign, means he, can, he will scratch off everything. All of the items on his to-do list will get done. That's what it means for him to be sovereign. What I don't mean is that God controls everything. I don't believe that. There are some that do, not me. Uh, R.C. Sproul, he's a pretty popular theologian. He famously said one time, if there are any rogue molecules, he actually said if there's one, if there's one rogue molecule in all of the universe, then God is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, then he's not God. I would agree with R.C. Sproul that if God is not sovereign, he's not God. If God can't accomplish his will, then there's someone greater than him, and we need to figure out who that is and worship him. But I don't agree, I would actually strongly disagree, that there's not one rogue molecule in the universe. I don't think God's sovereignty is expressed through, his, through omni-control, through God controlling everything that happens. I think there's trillions of rogue molecules, and they get together and form germs and bacteria and viruses, and they make us sick. And I think there's rogue people or maverick people on the earth and they're actively opposed to God and their sinful choices impact them and the rest of us. And they're maverick angels, we call them demons, led by Satan, who are fighting daily against the plans and purposes of God. And I I don't think that the things that, that those maverick molecules and people and demons are doing are being controlled by God. To me, his sovereignty is expressed in the fact that he's able to accomplish his purposes either in spite of or in or through all of that chaos. I don't see God as a puppet master pulling the strings on every molecule in the universe. I see him as the director of a play who's somehow able to get the play performed to script, even with a whole bunch of bad actors on the stage. And by bad, I mean evil. He's somehow able to do this. Amazing to me. It's absolutely amazing. I think about that prayer in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus tells us to pray. He says, pray to the Father. Ask him, say, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If God's controlling everything, then that prayer doesn't make any sense to me. If everything that happens is because he's willed it to happen, then why are we asking for his will to be done? So I think there's things that happen all the time that are outside of God's will, and I can't tell you which one is and which one isn't. But I can say, my opinion, God doesn't cause everything, but he can redeem anything, anything. And he will use everything to accomplish his will on the earth. When I read Ezra 1 through 6, I'm so encouraged by, as someone who's living in between. And sometimes to me, I feel already. And, it's in, and there are other times where I lean a lot more into the not yet. It's easy to get discouraged when you look at the sin and the suffering and the evil, not just in our own lives, but in the world that we live in. It's encouraging to me to read through Ezra and see 20-something years of history compressed into six short chapters, and we can see God's hand at work. We can see his sovereignty being expressed, his power and his wisdom and his goodness being expressed in the lives of these returnees. Look at who he used. He used pagan kings. He moved the heart of Cyrus to send these returnees home. That was unheard of at that time. Never happens. Nations don't do that. 
They don't send back exiles because those exiles are going to get together and they're going to rebel. It's never happened before. God moves on Cyrus's heart to send the Jews home. Darius, the king that we saw at the end, upholds Cyrus's edict and goes even further and says to the local guys that are fighting against the Jews rebuilding this temple, to that local opposition, he says, stay out of their way. And don't just stay out of their way. Fund the construction project out of the taxes you're raising. And let's go farther. Make sure that you're providing the Jews with everything they need to worship God. God does that. He stirs the heart of 42,360 Jews. We get that. Yes, he stirs the heart of his own people. He works through them. He works through a, a, a drought and a famine. And I think he caused that drought. I think that was direct judgment on the returnees because of their neglect of the temple. He speaks through Haggai and Zechariah, two prophets. We expect that. All of the different means that God is using in that short period of time to get the temple rebuilt. Think about the obstacles. You've got all of your people scattered 900 miles away from Jerusalem. He overcomes that, stirs the heart of a pagan king and 42,000 people to return. You've got the local opposition. The folks that you sent back, they're scared and they're intimidated. Doesn't stop the temple from being rebuilt, ultimately. You have the disobedience, the apathy, the neglect of, of the returnees. For 16 years, they were building their own houses and not God's. And yet he sends a drought, a famine, two prophets, and the people get back to work. It's amazing to me to see the way God works in and through and around and under and above and before and behind and despite. I hope that encourages you today for those of you who feel that tension between what God has already begun to do in you and what he hasn't yet finished. As you look at the world, maybe there's a part of you that's it's just disheartened and maybe you're losing hope and you're thinking, What's the point? What's the point? I don't see how following Jesus makes a difference. I, don't, I feel like God maybe is done with the world and my job is just to hang on. Maybe there's a part of you that's losing hope in a personal promise that God has given to you. Take comfort. If you can tattoo one verse on your heart this week, you already know it, Romans 8, 28. It's a great verse. What does God's sovereignty look like worked out in our life? He's always working all things together for the good of those who love him. You can count on that. I have no idea what the specifics of that look like played out in your life. And to be completely honest, sometimes the outworking of that promise we don't experience until after we die. So just know that. That promise doesn't mean rainbows and butterflies every day of your life. But it does mean that God is actively working to redeem everything that, that you're experiencing for your good and for his glory. And again, you may not experience the fulfillment of that until after you die, which for some of us, that's a hard thing to grasp. But our life compared to our life with him, very short, very short. Last thing and we'll be done. The temple, it's easy to lose the forest for the trees. 
the centrality of the temple. The temple at this point, it was a place where people met God. It was a place of worship. It's where the altar was, a place of prayer. That's where the people gathered corporately to pray. To me, it's a sign of God's, this intense and radical desire that God has as a holy God to meet with even an unholy people. And that's cliche for us, that God wants a relationship with us and he wants to meet with us. But step back and think about how remarkable that is. The holy desiring to be in relationship with the unholy to the point of sending his son to make that possible. God's sovereignty is exercised in service to his love. The point of rebuilding the temple was so that there would be a place where God could meet with his people. After 70 years of exile, he was ready to meet with his people again. And he created, the, he, re, he had, went through all of that stuff that he went through to get the temple rebuilt because he wanted there to be that place of connection. Here's where you come to meet with me and here's where I go to meet with you. This deep and intense and radical commitment to relationship that we see in him. Again, that's easy for us to take for granted because it, it's cliche. But to step back and to recognize when, when you're thinking about Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for your good, your good is relationship with him. And that's what he's always working for. Deeper and deeper, more and more. That's what he's always doing. Wanting to reveal more of himself to us and asking us to give more of ourselves to him. That's the highest and the best for all of us. The circumstances and situations aren't always going to work out the way that we want. And that can be devastating and disappointing and even hurtful. But what's underneath and shot through all of that is the relationship that God is looking to establish and cultivate and deepen. And you can bank on that. Read Ezra 1 through 6. Look at the commitment and the way he works, again, in and through and around and over and behind and in spite of, to get that temple built. Why? Because he wants there to be a place where he can meet with his people. We're now the temple of the Holy Spirit individually and collectively. And he's, he's working just as much, just as hard, just as diligently. It's the same intense and radical commitment to be with us. I want us to close with, with a little bit of prayer. It's 10.30. We'll have a few minutes. This is who I want to pray for. I want you to go ahead and come forward. Don't wait till I'm done or we won't have enough time. You can kneel here at the altar or you can stand and somebody will pray with you from our staff or you can go to those chairs on the side and we'll leave you alone. The big, the big category... This is anyone who, if you were honest with yourself right now this morning, you would say, I'm a little bit more towards not yet than already. And if I was honest, I'd say my hope is slipping just a bit. And what we want to pray is that God would remind you of his sovereignty this morning. That God would remind you that he's governing your affairs that God would remind you that he's working all things in your life together for your good and his glory. That God is actively drawing you closer to himself. That he desires to reveal more of his character to you. And he's asking that you surrender more of your heart 
more of your mind, more of your body, and more of your soul to him. That's, what's, that's, that's the thread that runs through all of our life. I absolutely think God desires to work in our circumstances as well, and we can pray for that. But the thing I'm really shooting for today, and again, even if you disagree with me about my take on what it means for God to be sovereign, I think we can agree on this. He does today. He wants to encourage you. He wants to renew your hope that he is actively working in your life and in your circumstances. I was thinking particularly of a couple of groups. Anybody, if you would say, my tank is a little bit empty when it comes to hope, we want you to go ahead and come forward. Two groups in particular, if this is encouraging to you. One, your work situation is not great. You feel um, underemployed, maybe misused at work. You've asked the Lord for new opportunities and he hasn't given you any. And you're getting pretty frustrated. And you're just wondering, it's a major part of my life. I'm not sure that God has anything to do with it. We want to pray for you. Another group, parents, I was thinking particularly of older kids, out You don't have quite as much control over them anymore. And you're really, really concerned. You have a kid who is making some bad choices and you're praying and asking God to intervene and it seems like he's not answering. It's difficult to watch your kids go down a road that you know is going to lead to them slopping pigs. But that's what you feel like you're doing and you're saying, God, don't you care? And I think what he wants you to hear this morning is he absolutely does. He is intensely committed to the salvation of your children. And it may be that for a time that plays out like just like in the prodigal son. There's a time of distance but just like the father in that story, every day was on the balcony looking to see if today was the day that the son would come home. God is still seeking after. Pray for you. One other group just popped into my mind. You're struggling with issues of fertility. And again, you know, it's like, it's not hard for God to make babies. He does it every day. And you don't know why not you. We want to pray for you as well. It's like God would renew your hope this morning. Spirit, would you do that? We're not to twist the Father's arm for certain outcomes. We're coming as sons and daughters, asking you to work in the lives of our brothers and sisters, for you to first renew hope, for you to remind them that you're sovereign in their life, that right now through your power and your wisdom and your goodness, you're working even these 
disappointing to devastating circumstances together for their good and for your glory. You've not forgotten. You've not forsaken. Covenant has not been broken. You're still their God and they're still your people. So would you work in these hearts and lives now as we close with this song of worship in Jesus' name. Amen. The rest of you guys can stand, sing with us for a couple of minutes before we need to dismiss. And y'all can just be praying for the people up here as you do that.